This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's. And you'll want to check out Zupan's new shrub drink options in their cafe department. These refreshing tonics are made with fresh fruits or veggies, herbs, sparkling water, and, hey, Pock Pock's some drinking vinegars. Very nice. Also new to their cafe and bakery departments, uh, start Oktoberfest early, because why not? Big and tasty Zupan's soft pretzels. I've had them myself, Court. They are so good, and they're big. They are big, and they're just a little buttery and... Uh... Right there in the bakery department. Very nice. Bavarian Beauties, baked in-house daily and ready to make your mouth water. And then summertime's running out soon. Back to school already. And so are Zupan's outdoor staples. September's the last month for Burgers in the Breezeway. Thursday's at Lake Grove and Burger Friday's at McAdam. And also it's last month for the Ruby Jewel ice cream truck at Lake Grove. So check that out uh, before it's gone for the season. Tuesdays through Mondays from 4 to 9 p.m. in the Breezeway at Lake Grove. Three locations conveniently located across the Portland area and always at zoopans.com. It's time once again for Portland's Food Scene Podcast, but today, Chris, Chris Angeles, by the way, Portland Food Adventures. Thank you. And Court Johnson, do we? Do you always want to hear, do you always want to be I don't mind. I, I started thinking about this, and, <laughs> and this is kind of, we're probably going too in-depth here in an intro. I'm like, do we have to introduce ourselves, but if this is someone's first oh, We need to introduce time, who we are, yeah, but not, not necessarily what else we do. I'm the, uh, I'm married, I have two daughters. Exactly. No, I, I get what you mean. I, I don't know. It. it I appreciate it. You like to toot my horn, and I like to toot yours. Oh, you like your horn tooted? I, yeah, that's a question for the other day. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's Portland's food scene podcast, but today it's Portland's beverage, well, beverage scene podcast. I never got to bring it up, but I used to work at an ad agency in Greenwich, Connecticut, and our big account was Seagram. Yeah, and okay. I, was, I had a story, and we didn't talk about cognac. Let's, oh, man. Let's introduce them and talk about what we didn't talk about. Sure. Uh, We're but, talking about Adam Robinson, by the way. Adam Robinson mm-hmm. of, of Deadshot, where Holdfast part of uh, where Holdfast takes place. Holdfast takes place they opened at up Deadshot, and that is uh, with Will Price and Joel Stocks. Yes, on Monday nights you find Adam there, and if you listen, he actually explains what that is mm-hmm. a little after he starts talking about it. Um, but he's one of our talented uh, bartenders in town. He's worked at some great places. Park Kitchen, Bent Brick, he's been at Ounce in Taipei, um, and Momofuku, and also Rum Club, and I just recently I asked him to come on this podcast when I was having a delicious drink at Expatriate, and he just ended his run there. Oh. He'll be doing some new things, but, um, but since that drink, and today he went to participate or compete in the Bombay or Sapphire Most Imaginative Bartender Contest. Mm. We were hoping that we would have a something to talk about the the victory yeah, and the ten thousand dollar prize. That he came home with a sash. But dude, no he's, sash. He's a victor just getting there. He had to Absolutely. beat a lot of great people to get over to London. Oh yeah, and he's talented and um, uh, some great cocktails and a really nice guy. We haven't had the chance to really talk until we just sat down moments ago. Super great guy, and we get a little tease here about the future of Deadshot. Oh yes, what might be in store for Deadshot? That's right, and there's more in store for Deadshot than just Monday nights. Right. So, you, I hope, maybe you heard it here first, I think. So, uh, Adam Robinson of Deadshot and the Adam Robinson brand. 
Growing up, what did when it came to drinks and so forth, what were you exposed to? You grew up in the East Coast, right? Yeah, um, up uh, Western New York. Western New York. Yeah. So that would make it around somewhere around Buffalo or Finger Lakes. Or? Yeah, uh, in between Buffalo and Rochester. Oh, okay. Yeah, real small town. I spent a year in Syracuse, New York. I was born in Syracuse. Oh, you were? Yeah, I lived in Ithaca for a while, but that was later when I was in school. Right. That was a rough place to go to. When I went to school, man, winter of, I'm going to age myself here, 77, 78. I've seen pictures. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that was my one year that I spent there, and that's what drove me out to L.A. and Arizona after a year of that. Yeah, I don't miss that at all. I mean, that was, you know, one of the reasons Portland was attractive was no snow, but, you know, Mount Hood's nearby if I want to go snowboarding. Do you do a lot of that? Not, uh, not anymore. Uh, I have a, a bone condition that, you know, kind of has caused me problems over the years, and it's the type of thing where it only causes me problems now when I do things like snowboarding. So mm -hmm. um, so guess what? What? Cut. That's what you got to cut. Yeah. Just so you don't have those problems. Yeah. So um, I'm with you. I moved out here, and I hear a lot of people complain about the weather. I don't care how rainy it is. You don't shovel rain. Yeah. <laughs> and and you really, the most you really need to wear here is a, maybe a jacket, but not a heavy coat or down and gloves and hats and and snow boots, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I see more people wearing hats here in the winter or in the summer than in the winter. <laughs> I cannot, I can't understand that. Corey, you see that too. I cannot understand someone who's got uh, a wool hat over their head in July. In, this, in July. How it's, does that work? It's the style, man. Well, I don't know, man. That's t <laughs> that's rough. I can't even imagine. So how long ago did you discover Portland? Um, I mean, I came out here for a visit. It was about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it was kind of uh, on my radar at the time. Uh, when I was young, I grew up, you know, upstate New York. I always wanted to live in New York City. So after I got out of school, I moved there, and I loved it. But I always knew it wasn't going to be a place I wanted to live forever. Um, you know, I was kind of figured till I was 30, and that's uh, just about how it worked out. I left New York when I was 29. and uh, Actually, no, right after I turned 30, actually. Um, and, yeah, and I, w I was looking for somewhere that was bigger than where I grew up. But not. What was the town? The town is uh, uh, Leroy, New York. Leroy, okay. If you live there, you call it Leroy. Leroy. But it's actually two words. Mm -hmm. And it's the birthplace of Jello. That's uh, oh. our claim to fame. And, and are you incorporating that into your uh, masterful uh, creations now? I've been known to make a, a bean jello shot from time to time. And, but. Is, that, is did you have a lot of did they serve a lot of jello as a kid was uh it, yeah like, I mean, is that all you got well i remember in fourth grade uh when you go through fourth grade there's jello days and it's like a whole week-long thing and there's like on friday on the last day of the week you have this big like school assembly and you sing the jello songs what is the jello song do you remember it i do not oh uh, come on well it's something about um like something, something, Jello girl, or I don't know. I it, don't remember. Fourth it. grade was a long time ago. Wasn't that that was a Bill Cosby thing, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. He was the spokesman for a while, <laughs> and he was supposed to come to our town when uh, it turned the hundredth uh, anniversary. Wow, but, they're already f more than a hundred years into Jello. Yeah, I mean, and that was, I mean, that was ten or fifteen years ago, um, but it was right around some time, like his, I believe his. I was right around the time his son died, and he he didn't end up coming. But we had a big Jello jubilee for the uh, for the hundredth anniversary. Oh, nice! We have a Jello museum there and uh, Jello Brick Road, which 
isn't as cool. Is that a little unstable? Do you walk in the museum and you're... <laughs> it's, a, it, it's, it's a sidewalk which they sold bricks and you got your name and script inscribed on the bricks to raise money for the Jell Museum. Are they opaque? Is that... They're, they're bricks. They're, they're they, just regular yeah, bricks. But they call you're, you're, it the... Uh, they didn't the, call you up, Chris, to help with the creation of that. Otherwise, actually, they would be. I have a brick in New York, actually. Not in western New York, but there's one in front of City Field okay. with my mother and me, our name inscribed there, and we were at Game 5 of the 69 World Series. So nice. that's uh, that will always be there, and that's my memorial to my mom that I got. Anyway... Sorry, I digress. No, that has nothing to do with you <laughs> and your uh, career. Nor does Jello. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. How did you get to New York? So you, that's what you wanted to do uh, in a small town in upstate New York. What yeah. got you there? Um, so I went to college for, I went to Ithaca College and studied video production with a- Buttermilk of, Falls. Yeah, yeah. I've been there. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, Ithaca is gorgeous, I might even say. Um, yeah. Because of all the gorgeous. You might say, yeah. Yes. Uh, so I went to school there and studied um, television production. And, you know, if you study that in school, there's two real logical places to go after graduation, New York or, or L.A. Mm-hmm. And L.A. was not really of interest to me at the time. And so and New York was. So I went to New York and uh, pursued a career in uh, television and film. That, that was what I was going to do, too, just so you, I, I didn't realize we had that in common. Yeah, and I did it for, uh, I used to work for NBC, I, I worked for Fox. Like, um, What'd you do for them? Mostly post-production, tape duplication, distribution, and uh, editing for a mm-hmm. while. Mm-hmm. Uh, editing for, for news, mainly uh, MSNBC. How'd yeah. you, and how'd you get those jobs? They're not easy to get, that's no. why I'm asking. No, it was incredibly difficult. Uh, one of my first jobs there, I worked for a company that um, did infomercials. I ran their office, and when we had shoots, I would work on set. And um, growing up, I'd always had a weird obsession with infomercials. They're entertaining as hell. But um, you know, when I worked for that company, I realized very quickly that every suspicion I had about infomercials was true, and it was all bullshit. Oh, the stuff that must have been going on behind the scenes, the conversations, well, had to be incredible. One of the things I, re- I, I remember specifically was we were working on this uh, steam cleaner, and um, you know we were showing all the things it could clean. So we had this old, rusty Weber grill that had like food and all sorts of stuff caked on it, and I had to go to Home Depot and buy a brand new one. And we set up the grill. And that's not easy to set up. Well, Weber yeah. is not so hard, just a Weber charcoal. Yeah, yeah, it was just a charcoal one, but we set up the dirty grill put the static shot on it, use the steam cleaner, and then we put the brand new grill there, shot it again, and then in post-production, they just edited from old oh, grill man. to new grill. And then after the shoot, I had to return the grill to Home Depot. Oh, they were that cheap that <laughs> yeah. you couldn't even, and you didn't even, they didn't even say you take it home. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I lived in New York City. I, I had nowhere well, to put true. a rubber grill. Well, still, you had friends back in Leroy yeah, where yeah, you could yeah. do that. I, I could have sold it or something. Exactly. So, they, was there any disclaimer? Did they just do that? Was cool for them to do without a disclaimer? Um, you know, I never <laughs> saw the final thing on TV, but I always got to assume there's a lot of fine print in the beginning and end of those things. I marvel at how they slam that up there so fast. There's no way to read it. Yeah, it's just you know fine print really quickly. Yeah. So, um, did you get disillusioned with the business, or what? What caused you to move into food and beverage? Um, so. Actually, before I moved to New York, uh, one of my first jobs in New York, uh, I was cooking. So when I was in college, I would spend time in Atlanta where my parents were. And I'd gotten a job at a Joe's Crab Shack and another 
little restaurant in town and I was just working in the kitchen, saving money to move to New York. Um, and then when I got to New York, I needed a job right away. So I just got a job in a kitchen at the Park Avenue Bar and Grill, which was a pretty crappy sports bar on Park Avenue. Um, I really didn't enjoy it. Um, so then when I was looking for work, you know, a lot of television and film is freelance. Um, so I did get a job at a little restaurant in Brooklyn, bussing tables, and uh, while which allowed me to do freelance production assistant jobs from time to time and on the side. And uh, I ended up working the, at that restaurant on and off for four years. I eventually was uh, the manager. I worked every position. I bartended. I and served. you were a young kid doing it then, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a it was a place called Surf Bar. It was in Bedford right off. Um, it was in Williamsburg right off Bedford Avenue. And um, yeah, I worked on and off there for three or four years. And then then I got into NBC and um, basically that was a full time position. So I left the restaurant business and was full time with uh, NBC for, you know, about a year, a year and a half. And then that started to dry up a little bit and I was I would pick up some work with uh, Fox Business Channel, and then, um, but I was always kind of keeping gigs on the side. And then, uh, MSNBC moved from New Jersey to Thirty Rock, and a bunch of people got let go. And you know, I was a freelancer, so I was the first to go. And um, you know, my fallback was restaurant business, and so I just started applying for jobs and. Um, me and a friend were walking around Manhattan and I walked by Momofuku Sambar and, you know, I was familiar with the brand and I had my res uh, resumes on me and I was just like, oh, let me pop in here real quick and, you know, see if they're hiring. It was like a Sunday afternoon. Uh, stopped in, spoke to the manager. Manager's like, looked at my resume. It was like, all right. He's like, uh, we'd like to bring you in for a stage. I'm like, all right, cool. When? He's like, right now. And I was like, I had a fairly nice shirt on. And so I was just like, let me go to the store, buy a new shirt. And I'll come right back. So I did that, came back, stage that night, got invited back for another stage. And they really liked me. And I started working there as a food runner. And um, I ended up working there for uh, two years. And uh, I went from food runner to server um, to bartender. They didn't have a liquor program when I started. It was just beer, wine, and sake. And then... Um, a little, a uh, few months into it, they decided to put in a cocktail program and hired a man by the name of Don Lee, who, um, is, you know, pretty well-known guy in the in the bar business. Um, he got his start at PDT, and they brought him on to do the cocktail program. And I essentially told management because um, I had been making cocktails at home, you know, for years, like making bitters at home and just, you know, kind of geeking out on a home level. Were your were your parents? Uh, do they like cocktails? Because my, my father definitely loved his cocktails, but somehow it, I didn't, I like them, but I didn't, I'm not into it the way he was. Uh, my grandfather was more into cocktails, old fashions, Manhattans. Growing up, um, I remember, you know, when I would come home from college and open the liquor cabinet, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. However, we had a lot in high school. I mean, I, I remember there being black velvet and usually a bottle of vodka. Mm -hmm. Um, but now when I go home, my parents, they have a very nice, have you taught them? Yeah. Well, I mean, they've, I've taught them, they've taught themselves, but you know, my dad will reach out to me with questions sometimes. Like one time I remember him sending me a, a text being like, uh, 
what's the specs for the rum club daiquiri? We're having some friends over and I want to make it. And so now I go home and there's a bottle of rye, a bottle of bourbon, gin, rums. And, uh, you know, it seems like every Christmas I'm buying them bowl and china mixing glasses or, you know, cocktail books or, you know, bar spoons. And uh, now they're, they're really into it. And what got you into it? So you, as a guy, I, I say kid in 20s, but that's the way I look at anybody in their 20s. But, you know, it's not something uh, right off the bat you're going to say, hey, I really uh, let me let me get the latest bitters that I can find and really make some cool cocktails. Because I would imagine living in New York, it's not easy to live in the food business for, for anybody. No, no. I mean, it's it's a grind. I mean, I remember working there. I was working you know, long hours, like it's, it was a grind. Um, I don't really remember what exactly got me into contact, uh, cocktails. I'd always been into food. Um, two of my good friends there, uh, we used to throw kind of like not dinner, not dinner parties, but they would always grill and barbecue and they would always be responsible for the food. And I just kind of always took over the drink aspect of it. And so I would read, blogs and you know stuff online and find recipes and kind of do you know like I said I used to make bitters and do all these things and this was before I really was working as a you know cocktail bartender I'd bartended for a few years but the spot I was at in Brooklyn we made drinks but at the time I didn't know that our Mai Tai was was not proper you know it tasted good but it had it was red you know it wasn't a proper Mai Tai but I didn't know any better but um had a lot of fun with it and just really got into it then. And, um, you know, there was a time where I was doing both television and bartending and, you know, I felt like I needed to make a decision. Um, I think I was probably about 27, 28 then. And I was like, what path do I want to go down? And I decided hospitality. Um, so you were looking long-term. This was, this was at a point in your life where you could say, okay, I'm not just sustaining and paying bills tomorrow. What do I really want to do? Exactly. And um, as much as New York City is an amazing restaurant town, um, you know, like you said, it's it's a grind there. And um, I knew like working for Momofuku, I wanted to work for them for a couple of years and get to the point where I had a good resume and enough experience where I could go anywhere and, and get a job. And, you know, uh, having that on my resume really opened up um, a lot of doors for me over the years. And there have been a few who are now in Portland who have that on their resume that helped that, uh, Johanna, where? Yeah, oh, there's more than a few, yeah. Who else? Um, yeah, Rob um, Walls, right? Yeah, I believe so. I don't know him personally. Uh, Johnny Leach from Cholino. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and his wife, she worked for Milk Bar. Um, there's another gentleman who worked more kind of behind the scenes who's in town. And... Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a few of us out here for sure. Did you know them when you moved out here? Were they some of the first people that you were I, able to fall back on here? Because you need somebody when you come out. I actually moved. I was one of the earlier ones to move out. Um, like, I knew of Joanna, but uh, my girlfriend at the time worked at Noodle Bar, so they knew each other fairly well. Mm -hmm. um, but none of the people I, wor I worked with there uh, that I was really good friends with ever came out here. But so were you, when you moved out here, you were out of food and more into cocktail, more into bartending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my goal was to come out here and get a job at a bar or a restaurant. And um, you know, my first job here in town was with Park Kitchen. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, you would say that, yeah. or maybe not their first, but 
I think that restaurant more so than any, you know, now that the Heathman's not open any longer in Wildwood, or I think the the last one standing would be Park Kitchen that has so many people all over the the city who went through Park Kitchen. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, front of the house and back of the house. Um, yes. Yeah, so who was there? When was this? At what stage? Because they were what restaurant of the year in two thousand three, I think. Where you were, you came after that? Oh no, this yeah, this was two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Right. Okay, yeah, just about when the food scene started happening. So, was there a cocktail scene in Portland then? Uh, oh yeah, of course, of course. You know, I'd done my research and before I got out here, and you know, I'd read about you know the. Kevin Ludwig's and, you know, Lucy, uh, Lucy Brennan of Mint. And, you know, you had Teardrop and Clyde Common. And and that, so in 2009, that was, I knew, I of course I know, I know them, yeah. and but I didn't know if 2009 was the point where everybody would would know who everybody is. Well, I mean, I was, I was doing my research, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to get in a good spot when I was out here. And I remember um, Dave Cheneau actually did a guest bartending shift at uh, PDT in New York. It was may it was maybe three or four months before I moved out here, and I had you know I had heard the name, and uh, I remember going there and um, feeling a little bit like a like a stalker because like he introduced himself, and I'm like I know who you are, you know, <laughs> and I wanted to go there and meet him because I knew, you know, he was a big name on the cocktail scene here. He was at Teardrop then, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, like I mean Portland definitely even then had a they were on the map as far as cocktails. I mean you had Morgenthaler and his. Uh, you know his blog and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I wasn't reading them, I mean, <laughs> so so you were, and uh, and s- certainly, yeah. That not not just our chefs and our artisans, but yeah, our cock, our bartenders or mixologists, whatever you want to call them, they are celebrities in this town. And I don't know, and I I use that ter- that's a very loose term, yeah. but I mean <laughs> people know names. Put For it sure. that way. For sure. So they know names, and that's what I mean by that. I don't. Is that true in other cities that that people would know who the the cool bartenders are and the cool who's who's at the cool bars? Um, yes and no. I mean, for people in the know who do read food publications, who do listen to podcasts like this, sure. I mean, they're in the know. But um, you know, I remember recently meeting someone at my bar from Houston, and um, I brought up Anvil Bar and Refuge, which is a well-known bar there, and. Um, the women were so surprised that I knew of it. They went there all the time, but they had no idea that it was known nationally and, and it had such a reputation, you know? So there's, you know, there's people in the know and then there's people who just know what they like and they know they like good drinks. And so they go to these places, but there may be, you know, they don't know the name of the bartender and maybe they don't want to, which is fine. You know, they're just there for the drinks, which, which is, yeah, you know, that's what we do. So do you, um, consider yourself... More a mixologist, a bartender. What side do you? You know, I. This is something that gets brought up all the time. I'm uh, sorry. No, 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 no. It's fine. It's <laughs> fine. But the, the way I always say is like, um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with bartender. Like I might say I'm a bartender, but I study mixology. Um, you know, there's a saying in the business: um, bartenders serve customers, mixologists serve cocktails. Meaning, mm-hmm. you know, if uh, you know maybe the drink is more important than the customer, which, you know, is not the way it should be. Uh, but, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the term bartender. So I'm, a, I'm an experienced person. So I can have a great cocktail, but I really like that I know you're making it and we can have a conversation. You know, the basic bartender stuff that, you know, that is 
stuff of lore, as the bartender knows more than most other people, except maybe a hairdresser. I don't know. <laughs> um, but that's an important part of it. And as I would imagine it's an important part for you, right? Is the interaction with your customers something that you... Absolutely. That you get more joy in than actual mixing drinks, or is it a mix of both? I mean, I love making people good drinks, you know, or making uh, them something they've never had, or, um, you know, yeah, like turning people on to new flavors or new spirits. And... Mustard in a drink, that was the first I'd ever had. Dead <laughs> shot. Exactly, you know. Um, and the customer aspect of it is amazing. Um, I mean, one thing we kind of always say is, like, you can teach anyone almost anyone to make a cocktail, you know, that aspect of bartending. But the people side of it, you can't teach. You know, you either have that or you don't. Um, you know, you can get better with it, but you either can talk to people and, you know, converse and, you know, have that type of relationship. Or, Be a therapist. Are yeah. you a therapist a lot? Um, rarely, but, you know, I, you know, I've had people who have been sitting at my bar for years, you know. I've seen them go from single to married to divorce, you know? So in certain aspects, yes. But um, I think that might be more so the kind of neighborhood spot where, you know, where, where, you know, the neighborhood bar where people go maybe every day or, you know, a lot. You know, I, I look at those bartenders as more of the uh, the therapist type. Yeah, the cheers kind of place, yeah. I guess. Not yeah. to be pretty cliche about it, but... Um... You know, that's the cliche spot for that sort of thing. You know, but and, and it's like cocktails are great. I love cocktails, but who can drink cocktails all night, you know? Some people can. Have you seen some people with incredible capacity where they're at the point where you're thinking, I shouldn't be serving them, but they seem okay? Occasionally. Uh, yeah, occasionally see people like that. That um, Yeah. And you really got to keep your eye on them. Like, you know, I think this person should be more drunk than they are, but they're... They're, they look fine. You know, they're talking fine. They're not showing any of the signs of intoxication. Uh, yeah, that happens from time to time. Sometimes it's not until they stand up. Yeah, yeah. That you can, or at least for me, that's, I didn't realize this. But there's the flip side, too. Um, you know, I used to work in Taiwan for a year and a half, um, and I would serve people drinks there that halfway into their drink, they maybe needed to be cut off. You know, that was a market where you didn't have to cut people off if you didn't want to. We did at the bar I worked at, but um, it often didn't go over very well because the drinking culture in that country was one of excess. You know, um, it was socially acceptable to go out and just get plastered. Um, we didn't um, enforce that culture at, at the bar I worked at. We were a Western style bar, you know, um, so we, you know, we, we didn't want it to get rowdy. You know, we didn't want people, we wanted people to, you know, remember their time and remember they had a good time. And how do you cut people off when they don't want to be cut off? Um, that is, you know, cutting people off is a very tricky situation and every single one works out differently. I mean, I've had people who wanted to fight me, you know, for cutting them off. Um, Will you fight? No, no, absolutely not. I'm just going to call the cops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I'll defend myself, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm not. It's never fighting. gotten that close. Uh, no. You've you got a bar separating you, too. It's yeah, I mean, like, I... I've drag, drug people out. I mean, I've seen people dragged outside. You know, um, I had a situation once where a customer wanted to was look was throw a glass at one of my bartenders. So I mean, we we got him out of there quick. Um, you know, there's no there's no reason for that kind of behavior. 
Uh, I find more often than not, if especially if it's like a group, um, and yeah. one person in the group, and you 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 know you cut that person off, they might not be happy, but more often than not, their friends are gonna come thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, because if if I notice they're intoxicated, and if I notice they need to be cut off, their friends notice as well, and you know. You know, your friends generally won't tell their other friends, oh, I, you know, I think you should take it easy. You know, they're, you know, it's so it's sometimes, you know, we it's need a hard to st- thing to do. It is. It's a tricky situation and it takes um, it's never, you know, it's never easy, uh, but it has to be done. You know, I couldn't accomplish that with my father. That was not you could not tell him that he had too much to drink and that the, he wanted the car keys. Right. It was rough. So I understand. So let's get to something more fun. Okay. You were just in the, uh, you you were just in London. Yep. Uh, most creative bartender competition. Uh, imaginative. Imaginative. Yeah. Right. Imaginative. Yeah. How do you approach uh, competition like that? I was actually uh, I judged a Luxardo cocktail competition a few years ago. I had no place judging something <laughs> like that, but it was really fun. I yeah. got to San Francisco with Nathan Gertes. Okay. That was a blast, and uh, yeah, we almost went to Italy, but. So, so when something co- like that comes up, you're up against people all over the country and the world, right? Who are good at what they do. What do you? How do you start that? Developing what you're going to make for that competition. Uh, so this one in particular, it's sponsored by Bombay Sapphire, mm-hmm. and um, you know they 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 really want you to think outside the box, and it's all about you know inspiration and and for me. Um, with this competition, with every competition is different, you know. Uh, ultimately, you don't know what the brand's looking for, um, you know. Um, don't they tell? But they give you guidelines. So they what do. What we like, missed was Nathan only used one Luxardo product. Exactly. His was hands down better than anybody else's, and everybody was saying you're going to Italy. Yeah. But he, everybody else used four or five in the drink. I mean, it, it and that's the exact thing. Like you know, they never said use more than one uh, or. Um, so with these type of things, you kind of over the years, you know, the more you do, the more you learn and you learn what brands are looking for, judges are looking for. With this one in particular, I just really went for it and um, used a lot of ingredients that are unique that, that I'm familiar with and um, tried to come up with a complex but delicious cocktail that had a good story behind it and one that I thought you know, um, represented the brand well and the product well. And, um, you know, it got me to Seattle for the regionals, which I won. And then, you know, got me to London for the finals, which I didn't win. But uh, How many people were in the competition? That was the North American finals. So there was uh, 12 total, one Canadian and the rest were American. Oh, um, in in London. Yeah, yeah. So this year there's no international aspect. Oh. Well, just, just Canadian, you know, but... Um, in years past, there was a European contingent and whatnot, but the last two years has just been the U.S. and Canada. So um, what, what was your cocktail? So my cocktail was called uh, the um, Golden Star. It uh, featured egg yolk, uh, lime juice, concentrated pineapple juice, uh, toasted rice powder, and uh, orgeat, um, which is a syrup typically made from almonds, but I made one from uh, toasted sesame seeds. And then I smoked the glass using uh, white cedar wood and then served it on a piece of cedar with uh, a couple garnishes on the side, which were um, candied dried hibiscus flowers that were tossed in toasted rice powder and roasted pineapple that was rolled in sesame seeds. So essentially the main flavor elements of the drink were represented 
uh, outside of the drink in edible form as well. Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupans. Unsurpassed quality. From the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupans and be inspired for your next meal. Food-loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupans is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupans Market. That, so here's the, the general question. I have a good friend of mine who I brought out, and I he likes to drink, and I've taken him to Expatriate and some other places. And now I'll, once in a while I'll send him a picture. And, uh, and I like to send the cocktail and then the description. And his question is always what mine is, is how the hell do they come up with that? Where Where's <laughs> that coming from? I mean, how... How do you decide? There were some pretty elaborate ingredients in that drink. How are you putting that together? And and do you get to the point where you go, nope, I'm not done yet. I gotta have a little. I gotta have a little more smoked something in there. Well, for the Bombay Sapphire one, I definitely felt like you know complicated, and I felt like uh, in this competition they wanted you to make a drink that only you could make. Whereas a lot of competitions, they want a drink that is marketable in every you know bar and market that any bartender can replicate, you know, so they can sell the brand, sell the drink. Whereas this competition I felt more was, you know, about the individual, you know, and the story behind the drink. Um, and what was the story behind the drink? So the story behind my drink was essentially I picked flavors and ingredients that were, you know, from different parts of the world in which I've traveled to and related my story to a man by the name of Ivano Tunuti, who is a, uh, the master of botanicals for Bombay Sapphire, uh, or Bombay gins in general. He travels the world and um, sources all the botanicals for their gins, and um, I related places he travels for certain ingredients to places I've traveled um, over the years. So there was some good research involved there, right? You had to sit down and, and really see. You had to learn a lot. It just wasn't off the top of your head. Yeah, but at the same time, I was, you know, I was familiar with a lot of the ingredients. Um, it, the cocktail was essentially a mashup of several different drinks on my menu at Deadshot right now. Um, all of those ingredients I use in uh, three or four different drinks on my menu. Um, so I was familiar with the ingredients. And, you know, like the toasted rice powder is something, um, an ingredient commonly used in Vietnamese and Thai cooking that I wasn't really familiar with until you know, a year or two ago. And, um, yeah. And so all those in, you know, ingredients like the sesame in that drink is in the Jack Nance drink, the, which is the mustard one, which you've had. Who is Jack Nance? By the way? Uh, he's a actor most notably known for his movies and, or his uh, roles in David Lynch films. And, uh, he was in twin peaks. He's the, uh, quirky mill worker. Um, but yeah. Uh, and the reason I, I, I called have to consult my Netflix on that. <laughs> I, I call it that because the mustard in there is uh, Nance's sharp and creamy mustard, which is a mustard from Rochester, New York, which uh, I grew up. Oh, on. there you go! Yeah. Wow, there's yeah. a lot. There's a lot in that. There's more than just that drink. So for you, it's very personal. Yeah, I mean, it can be for sure, um, especially also when it comes to naming cocktails. Um, you know, I you can just slap a name on it, which sometimes you do, but it's always better to have you know some sort of connection to the drink um, if possible. You know, so there's a little story behind it, a little something to talk about. That would be a whole. I think that would be a whole podcast episode. Court his naming cocktails and some of the 
the uh, stories behind them. Yeah. Who's got the best story? Yeah. I mean, some people will tell you, uh, I have friends who do this, they come up with the name of the cocktail first, and then they craft a drink around they that. They go around that. Yeah. I've often thought people are having a lot of fun right now naming uh, different strains of cannabis. Yeah, right. I mean, those are... Yeah, but they're one or two words. You you have a little more leeway because you can go you can go into a, almost a sentence. Who is Jack Nance? That's not, yeah, so, that's more than just you know Manhattan. <laughs> so uh, is the name is it is the name important in selling a cocktail? It certainly can be. Uh, a bad name will certainly um, not help a cocktail sell, um, and a good name, a clever name, can. Um, and do you have to be aware of gender? Do you have people who are a little more, like guys who wouldn't want to order something that's a little feminine? Yeah, I mean, that's an issue for sure. Um, it's, I see it more with uh, sometimes you see guys asking what type of glass it's served in or how it's served. And they're not saying it straight up, but they want to know if it's, you know, in a rocks glass with ice or if it's in a coupe because often, more often than not, um, for some unknown reason, some people have a problem drinking a cocktail out of a coupe. Uh, I don't get it um, at all. But but you don't tell them that. That's not part of being a great bartender is making them feel shitty for no, of course their, not their their glass decision their glassware decisions. I mean, no, I don't know. If I serve someone a drink that's pink, and or if someone, um, you know, says uh, I don't want a girly drink, you know, I'll. I, I'll call them out on that. You know, drinks aren't gender specific. Like, I know a lot of girls who drink whiskey neat. You know, there's there's no girly drinks. There's no manly drinks. They're just drinks, you know. That's the way I look at it. I've been on the receiving end of that. I've been accused of ordering the girly drinks. And, I mean, and well, but, like, but what's that mean? Like, I, like... Okay, the typical girly drink people might say is like maybe Oh, you pink. have to know what the girly drink is. Well, it's pink and sweet maybe, but like... Right. I like sweet drinks. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I like the color doesn't affect, uh, my, the taste, you know? No, but it also could be the taste. If it's too sweet, you're thinking, oh, I gotta be not your, right. you are, but people <laughs> yeah. are thinking I need a little more manly drink here, you know, for whatever reason you want to appear that way. That's, you know, an extension of, of someone's personality, I would think, or what they want to, what they want to accomplish. Same thing with cars. Yeah. Right. For sure. So, I mean, I drove a, a Beetle for a while. Oh my God, we're gonna get. Are we gonna get texts on this? No, we're not. No one ever texts. No, no. one ever comments we'll right. on anything. Um, but I had the first year of the new Beetle, okay. and uh, you know, it turned out that's generally, from a marketing standpoint, now uh, not necessarily the most masculine car I could have driven. So, I've I've experienced the same thing with drinks. People, I don't think it, but. You know, they've mentioned to me, oh, you're getting that one, and there I am. So, yeah, I mean, as long you know, as long as it's delicious and you're enjoying it, you know, uh, that's all that matters. So, you've worked with some pretty incredible chefs, you know, starting in New York, but here in Portland, you know, with Naomi and with Joel and uh, Will and plenty of others. Uh, how much of an influence do they have on on your craft? Uh, tons, you know, uh, my first job, first two jobs in town were Park Kitchen and the Bent Brick and, um, Scott Dolich, you know, owner of both of those. Oh, sorry. I didn't mention him. I couldn't have mentioned everybody, right? You've been yeah. at Rum Club too. And right. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think 
you know, Park Kitchen was the first bar ever managed and ran, you know, on my own. Uh, did all the cocktails on my own. Um, and Park Kitchen is a very, you know, farm-to-table, hyper-seasonal, you know, and Scott always wanted that to be reflected on his menu as well. And um, he was very integral in, you know, me growing and getting better as a bartender. You know, he invested time and money into me that, you know, he didn't have to. You know, a lot of, like, it's like I used to do competitions back then, six, seven years ago, and I would get into them, and, you know, he would be like, he would pay for part of my airline ticket. Or, you know, if I was going out of town, he'd be like, you know, bring me back some receipts from some bars, you know, like, Stuff that he didn't have to do, you know, but he, but, but, oh, he, but as a great restaurateur, that's something he almost has to do, right? To encourage exactly, I mean, expansion he, of knowledge. He recognizes that that is a way to learn, you know, whether, you know, he did the same thing for his cooks, you know, but that's not something that happens in this business. It, it should happen more, and I bet it happens in more and bigger cities, but um, I've, you know, doesn't happen a lot in Portland. I think that's also why a lot of I, my guess is a lot of uh, chefs like to hear what Gary Okazaki has to say, Gary the Fruity, because he's all over the world and they want to they want a perspective on how how's our food compared to everything that you're tasting elsewhere. It's not all about Portland, and Gary will be the first one to tell you that. And yeah, and he'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think he'll be slightly honest. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No, but. That kind of um, mentorship is, is very important. Um, and, yeah, working with Will and Joel right now, um, you know, at um, Deadshot and uh, Hold Fast, you know, they've taught me, you know, I used to cook, but I'm not culinary trained, you know, and I use a lot of interesting ingredients in my, in my cocktails. And there's a lot of times, um, you know, I go to them first if I have a question, then I'll consult the Internet because, you know, if they know the answer – They'll tell me, you know, whether it's making a French style meringue for, a, you know, an eggnog style cocktail I'm doing or uh, for London, I was prepping a sorbet um, uh, with bitter melon and tarragon sorbet. And uh, Joel showed me how to a method using dry ice, you know, how to make a dry ice sorbet, which I didn't know that was a thing. Not you know? bad resources, right? Not everybody can call on people that talented exactly to help yeah no i'm very directly without a youtube video right now i'm uh, fortunate to have them you know as friends and uh, colleagues so you so you're a dead shot one night a week you just left your run at expatriate ended correct or is it ending uh, yeah i was there for a, 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 about a year okay um, just under a year and um my last day there was just before i went to london um uh, kyle and naomi and that whole crew up there is really awesome like I loved working there, but it's uh, time for, you know, a little change of pace, focus a little bit more on Deadshot. And, um, you know, right now I'm, I have nothing concrete planned for the future except for Deadshot. But, so there uh, wasn't anything you had in mind that said, okay, I've got to focus here. Or do you have something that, that you're working on that, okay, I need to leave to do this? Or you're just leaving yourself a bl- uh, the opportunity for a more uh, blank slate. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was hoping I was going to win that competition and that I was going to put a little cash in my pocket and, you know, that would... Uh, was there a consolation cash? A trip to London. Okay. I would, you know, so... Well, that's, you can't use that right now to pay for no, anything. No, <laughs> no, not at all, but, uh, but yeah, that How experience. much was it? What was the winner? Ten, ten grand. Ten grand. 
you know, so that would give me a little breathing room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but right now, I really want to focus on building the Deadshot brand um, and mine as well. Um, currently looking into um, certain venues for, you know, possibly bringing the drink aspect of Deadshot off, you know, uh, in a night addition to Monday. You know, uh, obviously, Will and Joel, uh, they run Hold Fast and they have their obligations, but... Um, I've been chatting with some people about, you know, taking my cocktail menu and maybe teaming up with some people and doing some collaborations. And, uh, and Will and Joel are fine that they're, they're not feeling too proprietary about what you're doing there. Can't go somewhere else. I mean, you know, Deadshot is the three of us, right. you know, there's no Deadshot without them, but, um, you know, just to build the brand right now and kind of expose, you know, not everyone can come out on Monday nights. Um, it's, it's certainly tricky. Maybe if I did a Friday night somewhere you know and did a pop-up with just a drink aspect of it you know people could come out and have my drinks and experience you know at least some of Deadshot um you know we can't assume everybody knows what Deadshot is either okay can yeah. you explain that yeah good point, what good Deadshot point. Is? so Deadshot is a pop-up we've been doing for just over a year now um it's Monday nights only uh from 5 to 11 uh it's myself uh William Price and Joel Stocks who are the chefs behind Hold Fast Dining uh, dinner series located in southeast portland also they worked at park kitchen years ago yeah That's where they... and and the bent brick and we're, the bent brick yeah. right they were the bent or they were the bent brick yeah we were the only were... three to to leave to go from park kitchen to the bent brick right scott initially didn't even want me to go uh, he didn't want there to be too much crossover and i essentially told him if he didn't let me i was going to quit <laughs> uh, yeah there's the new york side of you yeah well it's not a very portland way to negotiate because I mean, it was one of those things I'd been at Park Kitchen for a year and a half, and, and like, I, I wanted to open a new project, you know, and I wanted, you know, I loved working for Scott, and I wanted to continue. But um, So it seems like you always have a thirst for something new, no pun intended, <laughs> that, that you can only, you get maybe after a year or two, okay, I've done this, let me do something new. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I was at Rum Club four years total. I mean, two different stints. I worked there for almost two years, and then I moved to the Caribbean for about eight months, and then I came back and worked there for. Well, there's know. a thirst for something new. Let's go to the Caribbean. That's yeah. not just next door. It's not going to Beaverton. Right. So then I came back, and I was here for almost two more years, and then I moved to Taiwan, and I was in Taiwan for uh, almost two years, and then then I came back and. How difficult was that transition for you, language? And um, it was actually much easier than I expected. I mean, Taiwan is extremely Western-friendly. Um, it's a little like Amsterdam? I, I, haven't, I haven't experienced I haven't. Ex- I've never been to Amsterdam. Okay. Um, but as, You can get by pretty easily speaking English. I mean, I learned. I had a, a tutor, uh, a Mandarin tutor when I got there, and um, all I really needed to learn was how to speak to taxi drivers and how to order food. Um, cause that's, and you know, obviously basic pleasantries, you know, hello, goodbye, excuse me, this and that. But, um, Mandarin's an extremely difficult language. Um, I knew, uh, I wasn't going to be staying there forever, so I didn't feel the need to, I mean, it'd take years to get fluent. Um, it's extremely difficult, but, um, yeah, especially I, the older you get, the harder it is to learn a new language. I've been working on Duolingo with Italian and I can't say I've really been working it that yeah. hard, but. Yeah, it's not. It's if you ask. Well, here you are with the with the app in front of you, and you think oh, I'm not bad at this. This is pretty good. And then you take the app away, and actually someone asks you to speak. I'm I'm useless. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, and I for certain people, languages are just more difficult. And I feel like I'm one of those people. I in 
high school almost fell out of Latin. I don't know why I even took it in the first place. Were you a good student? Yeah, I mean, I was, I, I was like B, B plus, where I never really did homework at home type deal. I, so I know that how that goes. I feel like if I applied myself, you know, I could have done honor roll, you and, know. But and <laughs> so, but what were you applying yourself to? What were you into as a as a junior high school and a high schooler? What was the, what crowd were you hanging with? Uh, junior high, I was definitely into a lot of sports and all that, you know. Um, but then everyone grew, and I didn't, so I couldn't really play football. And um, then I got into skateboarding and snowboarding. And um, you know, I went to a really small high school, so you know, there wasn't really cliques. You know, it was I graduated with ninety people. Uh, you know, everyone knew everyone. But um, yeah, I was you know friends with everyone. Are you still friends with a lot of people from high school? Uh, just a few. Uh, I had a my twentieth high school reunion was last month. Uh, went home for that, and yeah, I keep in contact with with a few of my friends for sure. Um, Have any of them moved out here? No, no. There was one guy from my town who was out here, and I didn't even know he lived here until one day he was sitting at my bar, and we got into a conversation about where you're from, and he says my hometown, and I just immediately shot back like fuck you like no way like and then he was a few years older than me he was in my sister's class you know but it was you know oh where are you from yeah, upstate new york okay rochester yeah okay leroy no i'm from leroy like it was you can't be yeah it was bizarre it was really weird uh but it was kind of cool as well and he was a cook here in town and uh, but um yeah no uh actually one of my high school actually a kid i graduated with from high school lives up in washington and I ran into him. I saw him at my um, high school reunion, and we made plans to get together and go fishing. So. And how was your 20th reunion? The 20th is interesting because people are have really set their patterns in life. They have start. They have kids and, and it, jobs you didn't know they were. You had no idea that they would have that. Yeah, I mean, my it was it was it was great. I mean, I love going home and seeing my brother still lives there and I have some family still many, there. So you've mentioned a, a sister and a brother. How many siblings? Do uh, older brother, younger sister. Okay, so you're, one of th you're in the middle. Yeah, three. middle child. Um, but it was great. Um, there wasn't a huge turnout uh, for the, for the uh, reunion. I think a lot of it's because a lot of people still live in that area and they see each other a lot anyways. And also nowadays with social media, like it's, Everyone knows what everyone's up yeah, to. Yeah, you don't They're, have to travel for a reunion now. Yeah. Um, but it, it was great seeing people, you know. Especially for a small class. Yeah. I, I don't know. I was going back um, either way. Uh, I try and go back that weekend every year to see my, my brother and my sister and my parents because we try and get together twice a year because they're all on the East Coast and I'm out here. So um, uh, I wanted to ask you some, is there, are there some unusual places that are off off the blogs that people wouldn't hear, a couple of places that people should go to get a drink in Portland that is unusual, or should they just stick with the known quantities and and, and the people that everybody kind of knows, you know, going to the Rum Club, going to the Rookery. Uh, I love going to La Moule. Nathan is one of my, easily one of my favorite bartenders in town. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not a, there's so many options for good food and beverage in this town um you know obviously there's new places opening up all the time um and i think a lot of the portland dining community um sometimes forgets about the places that have been around for a little while the park kitchens that's and whatnot. i i'm always harping on that here 
And that's why I think we're seeing like good restaurants closing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's so many places opening up left and right here in town. Um, we don't need more restaurants. I mean, it's good that people get to do that and expand. But on the other hand, we really have enough. When people say that there's not enough or they're, they're bored, I find that very hard to believe. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, but going back to your question, I, I you know. Uh, let me frame it another way. If you, unless you're out of no, no. an answer ready to go. Go for it. What's the best cocktail you've had that isn't yours in the in the last few months? The last Who few made months. it and what was it? I might have to think about this for a minute because I, <laughs> to be completely honest with you, I... You don't get out that much. I don't drink a ton of cocktails. Okay. Um, I had a... Um, I had amazing kimchi, like michelada at Han Oak. Uh, a couple weeks ago. That's one of my favorite spots right now. Mm-hmm. Um, their noodle and dumpling nights on Sunday and Monday is fantastic. And um, uh, Michelle runs the bar there, does a really great job. and She's cool. She's got yeah. good drinks. And uh, unfortunately, it's not as easy to get in there as it used to be since Peter got the um, you know food and wine, which is great. I'm happy for him. But I used to be able to walk right in there and I got to you know, put your name down and come back. Really? I haven't, I've been able, I think I've been going in later. Yeah. The, the key is going a little later. Maybe. For sure. I don't know. Um, also, you know, um, there's a lot of pop-ups going on, you know, Monday nights when we started Deadshot um, a year ago, you know, being just Mondays only. We did that because there wasn't a lot going on on Mondays. And we also wanted to have a venue for, industry you know, industry people who, um, who have, you know, who, who maybe, you know, work Friday and Saturday and Sunday and, you know, maybe don't have the money or the time to go to Holdfast, but want to eat Will and Joel's food, you know, come on a Monday. It's a la carte. Come in, have a cheap beer, a cocktail, a glass of wine, um, a few snacks, you know, and, and since then, you know, we've seen a lot of other things pop up on Monday and Monday's, Monday's an event night. I mean, even last night you had, um, Astral as uh, a new pop-up. Um, they were at um, Rip Rue, and then uh, Tyler's Hey Fish pop-up was over up in Northwest at uh, the waiting room. You mm-hmm. know, and um, and then you have Shipwreck and like and but th- that plays into what we were talking about before. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the the pop-ups now are getting in the way of the park kitchens and so forth to survive because everybody's looking for the new cool, fun thing. And there is that. There's no way you're going to battle that. But doesn't that get in the way of sustaining a tough living in Portland where things are changing with minimum wage and competition and costs? For sure. But, you know, uh, with Deadshot, you know, our our plan when we started was it was never to just stick to one night, Mm. you know, um, with all the competition, with everything going on in town. Like, you know, you want to build a brand if you want to open a place. You know, there's usually an infancy period in bars and restaurants. You know, maybe if there's a lot of press, you're really busy to start, but then it might die off for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. So with Deadshot, you know, we're doing it one night a week. We're, we want to build that brand, but, you know, ultimately we, we, want, we want to go seven days, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a different space, you know, which is something we've, we're actively pursuing and, you know, hope to um, find a place and, you know, open sometime in next year. Oh, cool. Um, 
But you know, is this the first time you've talked about that, or Will and Joel have? Um, I mean, we've we've certainly mentioned it to friends, and uh, you know, I mentioned it in one article. I mentioned it to Michael Russell, and he. Oh, met, just him. It, it well, it, and it and actually was printed in one of the articles in the Oregonian about us, and um, it was just kind of like one line, and it all and it it implied a little that um, Deadshot could go anywhere, and that Deadshot was only me, which wasn't the case, you know. Um, because I've been, we've been approached by some people about certain spaces, and they just haven't been right for us. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I forgot where I was going with that one. Well, that's all right. Yeah. Here's where here's where everybody else should go is down to Deadshot because not only after li- listening to you on this podcast, you can go down and order one of your drinks. This is interactive. Yeah. Podcast. Go down and order one of your drinks and talk to you down there. Exactly. Because that's the place. That's the only place right now where we know we can find you. For sure. For sure. Deadshot. So. Um, I mean, you'll probably see me popping up behind some bars here and there. Uh, I'm looking to, you know, pick up shifts at other bars and kind of um, get behind some other bars and make some other people's drinks. And, you know, uh, obviously I, I can't live on one day a week, you know, but, um, yeah, if that's the only place where you're definitely going to find me, uh, every week. Yeah. But know? that can change any day. Something, something might crop up and you, you never know. You never know. Right. you yeah, it's true. I mean, anything's possible. But uh, yeah, for the, you know, the plan is for the foreseeable future. Uh, every Monday night. Cool. We'll 11. see you there. Awesome. Thanks for being here on a Tuesday midday. Of course, my pleasure. And uh, and actually, this is going to stream tomorrow. We do, we usually don't pop them out that quickly. So uh, awesome. Not a lot of time for the ice to melt. Great. I look forward to uh, to hearing myself. Yeah, <laughs> hope so. Most people aren't. No, I'm really not. <laughs> <laughs> you sound great. Thanks. Cheers. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. 